disappoint you, that, that introduction isn't entirely correct. Uh, we have a group called Singularity University that's based at NASA. I don't work for NASA. And I certainly didn't inspire all the people on the Google Car team. They're a great team full of people. Uh, but I am here to tell you nonetheless about not just the work they're doing, but what it means when computers and cars get married. And I'm going to maybe at the end take some time to disagree with my two colleagues ahead of me uh, about some of the issues that are going forward. But I want to paint that future for you and give you an idea of what this means to society. And I'm going to look at five pillars that these technologies will change our lives with. One is simply saving lives. Another very important one turns out to be the energy of transportation. I want to look at our cities, in particular how cars have taken over our cities through parking and traffic. And finally, I'm going to talk about something we're not talking about as much right now, which is delivery. And if robots can do delivery, what it means for us. But saving lives is actually enough. And the reason that people are excited about this, and if people who are working on this tell you why they're doing it, they always say this is the first reason, is that human beings are actually pretty terrible drivers. So they kill, around the world, 1.2 million people every year, 34,000 in the United States, and 3,650 here in Italia. Now, that sounds less than the United States, but you're actually the fourth worst in the developed world, and you're worse than the rest of Europe. And having driven on the streets of Roma and Milan, I know why. <laughs> but there are also 50 million injuries in the U.S., uh, sorry, worldwide, uh, 2.2 million in the U.S., 292,000 here. All of this in the America, which is sort of the capital of cars, and so that's why I focus on its statistics, uh, was added up to cost about $230 billion, which was 2.5% of the GDP, or amusingly, if you expressed it per mile, about $0.08 cents a mile, which in America is about the cost of gasoline in an efficient car like a Prius. So people driving an efficient car in the United States are paying more for their share of the cost of accidents than they're paying for their gasoline. It's pretty astounding. Now, Americans also spend about 50 billion hours doing this really important activity. You've all done it. 50 billion hours, they only work 240 billion hours. So it's comparable to the total productive output of an entire country, the amount of time we spend driving. It's, it's about a quarter of that. Pretty astounding. Now, fortunately, or unfortunately, 40% of those fatalities turned out to be due to drinking, and robots rarely are caught drinking. 93% comes from human error, again, hopefully that we don't, like, just not paying attention. 80% of accidents are just something, somebody was not paying attention. Now, we also lose, at least this is a U.S. number, 41 hours a year to congestion, it may be worse here, and then talk about parking. Three parking spaces for every car, and in Los Angeles, not the poster child, admittedly, about oh, more than half of the land devoted to parking lots, garages, streets, roads, all these things around it an immense amount of the city given over to the car, and not just the city, but the energy. 25% of the U.S. energy budget and 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions. By the way, if you add up all the driving done in the world, it works out to about 1.7 light years every year. Now, how often do you get to use light years in your work? I think that's if you're not an astronomer. Um, that means altogether we're going faster than light, so somehow we're breaking the laws of physics. So how did this become reality? Well, uh, in Silicon Valley, we like to talk about garage innovation, and everyone thinks it's amusing that now people are doing it in real garages. And to use the, what must become the metaphor of the morning of the horse, this is not artificial intelligence as in making a, a computer that's as smart as a human being that can do everything a human being can do. It's a problem that a horse can solve, 
or even a bug can solve driving down the roads. And so it's a much more tractable problem. It's something that is within our grasp today. It all began when the United States military decided to hold some contests to develop this technology, and they invited small teams, not big companies, they could go too, but small teams from universities and other places to compete. And their first contest was actually a big failure. Nobody got more than about 10 kilometers from the starting line. The cars were weird looking. Uh, my friend Anthony built a motorcycle, which he forgot to turn on. But the second contest, just a year and a half later, was dramatically different. Five different cars took a 150-mile course along dirt roads in the desert. Stanford was the team that won that contest. Here's their car, and this is now seven years ago this took place. Here's their car driving down a steep mountain ravine with nobody in it and pulling up to the finish line. Well, Google was smart and hired the people from this team and the people who won the next contest for urban driving to build the next generation of car. Here you see Chris Hermson, another Canadian like myself and Mark, pushing the button to start the car driving through Palo Alto. The, Google has taken their cars a million kilometers on ordinary streets, stopping at stoplights, making left turns, yielding to pedestrians. Google has thanked these people for participating in their research. <laughs> Seeing the world in a way that humans don't see it, not driving the way that people drive, but in 360 degrees, all the time, all directions, in 3D. So the cars have gone through the urban streets that you'd expect, the crowded streets of San Francisco, dealing with left turns and stoplights and joggers running in front of you, going through things like toll booths to go over the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, going down the entire coast of California. Here's uh, one of California's pretty coastal towns. This is sped up a little bit. Um, driving on mountain roads and dealing with things that scare human beings on mountain roads. Seeing the same day or night, which is actually kind of useful. Um, and even for fun, they took it down this street in San Francisco called Lombard Street, they say is the twistiest street in the world. Uh, I don't recommend this speed on Lombard Street either. Uh, but remarkable achievement, this million kilometers. They've gone after the hard problems, like merging onto the highway. Uh, the Stanford team have even taught their car to park in a way I don't recommend you park. Although some spaces, maybe that's the only way. But you can get cars with some of this technology today. You can get cars that will park themselves in the showroom now, that will keep themselves in lanes, that will do cruise control and follow the car in front by a fixed distance, that will see pedestrians and hit the brakes for you if you're not going to hit the brakes. All of these things are in the showroom today. And as we heard in some of the earlier talks, car manufacturers are all rushing to announce their own products. We're going to see a little bit more about Google, but Audi was at CES last year with demonstrating their cars driving on the highways in Las Vegas. Um, Nissan has opened a lab in Silicon Valley, uh, and they have promised they will ship self-driving cars in 2020. Um, uh, they've also got a project going on in the United Kingdom, and it was mentioned earlier that here in Parma is another lab working on cars using machine vision. They're going to fail, but that's okay. Um, we also have seen uh, Tesla, as briefly mentioned, say that they're going to... Um, produce a car in 2016. They got ahead of Google, where Sergey Brin predicted people would be buying them in 2017. And Mercedes-Benz, aside from announcing recently that they are going to have a car in 2020, also has a 2014 S-Class that you will buy this fall, which will drive itself in a traffic jam. You still have to pay attention, but it will keep itself in the lane and keep itself from the car in front of you in the traffic jam, because they know no matter how nice your Mercedes is, you don't really want to drive it in a traffic jam. So here's the Google car doing something a little bit more futuristic. Um, and uh, da -da -da. did we play this video? Let's just go. Da -da. We were all good this morning. Here we go. 
Steve here is a civilian, not a member of the Google team, and he's going to take the car to do some errands. Hey, Nathaniel, how are you? Doing just great. You'll just push the button to activate it. Auto driving. Here we go. Away we go. <laughs> Look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> no hands anywhere. No hands, no feet. No hands, no feet, no nothing. <laughs> I love it. So we're here at the stop sign. Yep. Car's using radars and laser to, to check and make sure there's nothing coming either way. I find myself looking. <laughs> Old habits die hard, man. Hey, hey, they don't die. Hey, anybody up for a taco? Yeah, yeah. What do you want? What do you want to do today, Steve? I'm I'm all for tacos all myself. All right, well, let's go get a taco at the drive-thru. Yeah, we're turning into the parking lot. How neat. There we go. Now we kind of creep along here. Does anybody have any money? I've got money. No, I've got my wallet right here. <laughs> you roll down your window and order a burrito. Yeah, push that up. I'm doing very well. How are you today? This is some of the best driving I've ever done. <laughs> Ninety-five percent of my vision is, is gone. I'm well past legally blind. lose your timing in life, everything takes you much longer. There are some places that you cannot go, there are some things that you really cannot do. Where this would change my life is to give me the independence and the flexibility to go the places I both want to go and need to go when I need to do those things. Let's advance to the uh, the next slide from this video. You guys get out. I've got places I have to go. You know, so, you know, anyway, it's been, and it's been nice. You know, it's yeah. been, it's, it's that, been let's, nice. Yeah, thank you. So there you see, uh, as it turns out, a blind man uh, operating the vehicle. And nope, you played it again by accident. There we go. There we go. That's good. You see a blind man, and this is a whole class of people who today do not have the freedom of our cities and our world. And by the way, I refer not just to them, but all of you as you get older. Because as people get older, they lose their ability to drive. And this technology is going to bring that mobility and freedom back to, or continue to bring it to, those people, which is a pretty dramatic change as well. So how does it all work? The thing that made the difference mostly was this currently expensive, but soon-to-be-cheap sensor you see on the roof of the vehicle. This is a LiDAR. It is a laser rangefinder, which sends out pulses of laser light and is able to figure out how far away the return comes from, and thus get a three-dimensional picture of the world, 360 degrees, as it spins 10 times every second. This is real 3D, not like the fake 3D that you assume from your two eyes and from motion. It's a complete picture of the world, and you saw a brief clip of it here, the vehicle sending out the scan lines, seeing the other items in the road, identifying them, identifying exactly where it is in the road, and thus able to navigate and not hit things and 
go in exactly the right place. Again, not driving the way a human being does and not um, seeing the way a human being does. Now, that's not the only sensor. The vehicles are also equipped with radar. Uh, radar has a number of advantages. It can see through fog. It can um, tell you how fast something is going if you get a radar return from it. And as you might expect, there is a GPS antenna here on the vehicle. Uh, the GPS does not drive involved that much in driving the car, though. It's kind of like you use a GPS. It tells the car what street it's on, which is useful to know. But it, it does everything else with the other sensors. So all this together produces a vehicle which, as you saw, is able to move itself with a blind man inside, so without a transition to a human operator. And even though it, we were told that it seemingly no one talks about that, actually I've heard people talk about nothing else but this transition for the last several years. It's certainly being investigated a great deal. However, what people are working on in the most advanced labs is a system that doesn't need that transition. A system that brings mobility on demand, where you can pick up a cell phone and say, I need to get across town. And what pulls up to you, maybe today looks like an ordinary car, but in the future is a vehicle designed for that. It's a vehicle that's a pleasant work environment with a screen or a couch. Perhaps if there's two people in it, they're sitting face to face and having a discussion or a family is together. People able to work and read and, and treat it like a living room. And all of this happening, by the way, with no central control and no new infrastructure, no change to the roads, all happening in just the technology in the car. And that turns out to be very important. So one of the consequences of something like mobility on demand is a huge change in energy. And the reason is that when people shop for cars today, and by the way, if you're European, don't get too smug about this. 84% of all passenger kilometers in Europe are done in private vehicles. It's 93% in the US, so they're worse. But the car is still the dominant form of transportation, even in Europe, even in Asia. Energy is the big thing that cars use. And when people go into a car showroom today, they ask themselves, what car do I need for my life? And they often choose something big like this. They choose, uh, especially in America, but everywhere in the world, they choose this big SUV because they think, I ski twice a year, so I need something to go to the mountains. Or I, I, I carry cargo three times a year, so I have to buy a pickup truck. They buy the car that meets all the needs of their life. They don't buy the Smart 4.2 because some people do. But if they live in a city, it might be okay. But they don't buy it because they say, I can never do a whole bunch of things in that car. And that's not the decision I'll make for my life. But now if you have mobility on demand, you change the question to what car do I need today? What car do I need right now? And the answer for that can be the right vehicle for the trip. The right vehicle for this trip now, which is usually just me. And it's usually just going across town. And then a small, efficient vehicle, maybe even one half the width, or scooter-sized, or this efficient car that won the X Prize you see on the right, this could be the vehicle for 80% of trips. That could mean a huge reduction in energy. It's so green, in fact, that these small scooter vehicles use less energy, not just than the cars we drive in today, but than the transit systems use. Easy to beat the transit systems in the United States, but the most efficient vehicles can beat the transit systems in Japan in terms of how green they are. You won't ride the train because it's way too destructive of the environment compared to riding in a small personal vehicle. So we've known how to make electric cars for a long time, but we haven't known how to get people to use them because they're scared of the range, they're scared of the recharging, they're scared of all these issues and the cost of the battery. But robots don't care how convenient it is to refuel or recharge. You don't care about the range of your taxi. All you care is will it get you there. This, if deployed in the United States, would stop the United States from importing oil from overseas. And America has this pesky habit of going to war over oil that it imports, which is really annoying. 
right? It would be nice to have software make a change like that. So, you would have thought that the governments would stand in the way of a technology change as dramatic as this. Surprisingly, we've seen the reverse. In the states of Nevada and California and Florida in the United States and being talked about in Japan are new laws on the books actually enabling this technology. Here's a car from uh, licensed in Nevada to do autonomous vehicle testing. And there are people getting up to lobby for it. I told you about the disabled and the old people. I also think we'll see the drunks loving this technology because they can go out and get wasted and go home safely. And I also joke that Jews are going to love this technology because there's nothing they're going to enjoy more than arguing about whether it's legal under Jewish law to ride in this car on Saturday or not. Now, nothing is without downsides. If nobody walks anywhere, we could see uh, the world from this movie, and uh, we hope we don't see this, but it's possible. And it could be possible to, instead of getting a small, efficient car, to say, hey, how about a giant camper van? Uh, and, in fact, why don't I have a fleet of six of them follow me everywhere I go and make dock and make a house everywhere I go? That would not be very green. It would be kind of fun, and some people could afford it, so it might happen. We also see people, the military, wanting this technology for killing. We may see more sprawl in our cities instead of more density. And, of course, we have to worry about computer intrusion. I don't want to paint this as a perfect future, but there are many downside issues to look at. We also have to think about the issues for freedom. If you remember the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise, how many of you saw this movie? Uh, they say it was about psychics predicting crime, but it's really about self-driving cars, of course. And in the movie, Tom Cruise is being arrested, and his car tells him, oh, you, I have a new destination for you. The new destination is your office, and his office is the jail. So the car is taking him to jail to arrest him. You wouldn't want your car to betray you like that, would you? But, but the police, they want this. So we're going to see a battle over that, and we're going to see battles over privacy as well. And another issue in getting people to accept this is that for whatever reason, people just don't like being killed by robots. And that's supposed to be funny. Uh, people would rather be killed, it seems, by drunks. We're so scared of the potential accidents, and no technology is perfect, so maybe even the potential deaths, that we might slow down this technology even though it's saving lives because it's changing to different things. So this is something which will create a barrier. We'll also see people of a certain profession, I won't name them, who will try and fight a lot of battles about how the money should flow. In the end, by the way, the cost of accidents is always paid by you. You know, there's no other mythical person paying for it. You pay more for your insurance if there's accidents, other people's accidents, or you pay more for your car if the car company is liable. It doesn't matter who's liable, because you always pay in the end, the person who buys the car. However, these people will fight about it for some time to come. And there is a small matter of programming. Let's not pretend that we don't still have some issues to pro, uh, with uh, how to turn this from the prototypes you see now to something safe enough to go on the street, safe enough to deal with not having a human required to interact with it on short notice. However, the real lesson you might want to take away from this is that this is the computer and the car getting married. And the computer for the last many, many years, some would say even a century in some ways, has been dominated by the rule we call Moore's Law, getting twice as good every 18 months or every two years. Cars, if they had a Moore's Law, it would be these get twice as good every 100 years, right? Maybe that much. But the computer is going to become the most important part of the car. The computer is going to be the software, the driving system. That's going to be why you buy the car, not the engine. 
not how many horsepower it has. You're going to buy it because it's good at self-driving, has a nice interface, it's easy to use, it's comfortable, it's smooth, it doesn't jerk you out of the street. It, you, you barely feel it starting you up. You don't need that big engine. So for that type of driving, the computer is going to be the most important thing. And the most important thing is going to get twice as good every couple of years. And that's pretty remarkable. That's a very different way of thinking about transportation than we've thought about in the past. And because transportation is such a huge part of our lives, a huge part of our lives is going to change. And it's going to be done by competing innovators, not by the municipal administrators who plan cities and transit systems and road systems. It's going to be done by companies, small companies, big companies, competing, trying to sell things to my favorite people, early adopters. Now, early adopters, you know, they're basically stupid people with too much money, right? They go, they buy the 5S of something just after they got the, the 5, you know, even though they're still under contract. But you love them because they buy the new technology. They rush out and do that. And you compare them to municipal administrators. I hope there are no municipal administrators in the room before I insult you. But the truth is, these are not early adopters. These are people who do not risk their jobs on new technology. They don't change the way we live and the way cities work on a risk on something new and exciting. And done as well with bottom-up technology, not central control. You know, to criticize the previous speaker, and I apologize for that, this device here is eight months old. It's broken. I'm going to throw it away. I got a new one, but it's a CDMA phone. It doesn't work in Europe, so I still have this one. Okay? But that's it. This device, it's eight months old. The average car is 10 years old. If you want to know where the innovation will take place, where the pace of innovation goes, it's in the computer-based devices, not something that's mostly car. And so I think that if you allow things to happen bottom-up, it's amazing what changes. Let's talk a bit about the city. Cars that can drive themselves and deliver themselves don't park. What they would do would be called standing if they wait at all, but if they're taxis, they're just going to go and pick someone else up. So suddenly, you don't have vehicles parking, or if they're parking, they're doing it densely and they're small, and they're using a tiny, tiny fraction of the land we devote to parking today, which means that we can get rid of basically almost all the parking lots that we have in suburban spaces. We don't have any parking lots in the center of towns in many cases, but all those parking lots out there in the suburbs can go away. And that means we can turn some of these parking lots in my dream into parkland. I know we'll turn some of them into office buildings and everything else. But the opening up of all this land is going to be a remarkable change to cities as well. We're also going to get a chance to try and really tackle traffic with both the cars that drive themselves and the data networks which give them the information to uh, coordinate and avoid traffic, to meter themselves so that no more than the number of cars a road can handle ever attempt to get on a road. But we get to add a few more things. If people go in cars that are half the width of a normal car, but it's not a scooter you have to ride, it's something you sit in, you can get twice as many of those on the road. We can take the parked cars off of the side of the road. We can redirect streets at will so that in rush hour, most of the streets go the way people want to go and the rest don't. We can put cars closer together. They can follow each other closer together. It's possible, I believe, and also eliminating accidents which cause congestion, it's possible, I believe, to put 15 times as many people down the roads we have now than we do now. Again, without spending a dime on infrastructure or just a few dimes on the computer infrastructure, 15 times as many people. Now, let me finally talk about delivery. I don't know about here in Italia, but... In the United States, there is one product. It comes from Italia, which is the most important thing in the world. And you must be able to get it no matter where you are in 30 minutes. It's very important. Imagine a world where you can get anything in 30 minutes, not just a pizza. Anything. 
anything at least that you could buy from an online store. The big box stores, the Walmarts and so on, they are going to have to fear the online stores which can send you six pairs of shoes for 50 cents of delivery cost so that you can try them on and send back five pairs and just wear one. Where you can shop for all these things and get them in a very short amount of time because delivery robots turn out to be easier to build. You can actually, you, don't, you can't kill your cargo, that's kind of nice. Um, and you're not in that much of a hurry, so it's easier to make it safer. So you still have to not hit anybody else, but you've got an easier problem to solve. This is what the military actually wanted with their contests. So I have made the statement that to, to uh, use the words of John F. Kennedy that we should set ourselves to achieving the goal before this decade is out of a computer driving a man to lunch at noon and returning him safely to work. Kennedy said something else great. No, it's not that good a Kennedy impression. You don't have to applaud. That's okay. Kennedy said something else great, though, that some projects are worth doing not just because they're easy, but because they're hard. And this is one of those projects. The numbers are huge. Such a huge fraction of our energy. Such a huge fraction of our cities and our streets and our lives. How our children move around. Where we live. How densely we pack our houses. The car changed our world so much in the 20th century. The new version of the car, and I believe it will eventually not even be called a car. It will have another name because... Today they say driverless car sometimes. That's like horseless carriage because the only thing they can think about it is that it doesn't have a driver in it. But it's much more than that. Transportation is the purpose of cities. We live in cities to be close so we can get a short trip to the things we like, to our friends, to our jobs, to our shops. All of this is going to change and it's going to change by the end of this decade and get really big in the second decade. So all of these things are going to move forward and I thank you for your attention.